0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We are going to take you against the grain for another couple of hours. And John, really glad you could make it today, John. I thought you might have been on that uh, Blue Origin <laughs> Yes, space with all flight. my
1: extra millions and millions of dollars.
0: Just what you find between the couch cushions to, uh, to get up there. Yeah, I guess that was their fourth flight. They had five. Five paying customers or maybe it was five total and four paying customers and you know,
1: one of the things that I've learned about these about these flights that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are doing they shoot the rocket up it go it goes to a certain height it doesn't quite make it to outer space it makes it like to the ionosphere and then it just starts falling back with a big parachute that's it.
0: You can do that at Kings Dominion.
1: Seriously, right?
0: <laughs> no, and actually, it's hor- it was a horrible experience. I mean, terrible. I love it. I I go. I sit down. I put the thing on, and then every second of it, I'm going, "This is this is bad. I don't like it. Why did I do this? Why? Why?" Did so I, I don't know. That truck? just
1: seems. It doesn't seem like space flight to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, here you go, everybody. All you people who paid what twenty million dollars for that flight, John exactly. says it's not really space flight. <laughs> no, it's it's not. I mean, it's just up and then down. Yeah.
1: I'd want to doing a spacewalk or walk on the moon? absolutely
0: not. Absolutely not. Am I, (laughs) one, not ever getting in a spaceship? I'm not being blasted off from the Earth. No way. But especially not, are you getting me out of that spacecraft for a spacewalk? No. No. I want nothing to do with it. When I was in college... We have real stuff to talk about, but we can talk about space for another minute. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) When you're in college... When I was in college, um, I I volunteered uh, as an intern in John Glenn's office. And he said something one time just offhandedly that was so fascinating to me. It stuck with me all these years. He said, we really didn't know what would happen with space travel. And so one of the biggest concerns when he was preparing to go into space um, was they were afraid his eyeballs would pop out of his head. In, uh in zero gravity and so he said when he took off he had tape over his eyes to hold his eyeballs in
0: I mean that is the best part of the Air and Space Museum is seeing all the early spacecraft that are like made of wood yeah made of wood <laughs> with the tin foil over the control panels. it is wild yeah it no is. I would like to experience zero gravity but not in space no. hey there's other news happening today John you <laughs> might be aware uh, lots lots happening geopolitically yes. Uh, We have the Russian foreign minister in India, uh, which I did know. I was not aware that he is coming straight off a meeting in China where he also spoke to his Pakistani counterpart. And so I think all of this is really interesting. I think that the time I mean, you know, he's he's also just sort of bouncing through East and South Asia. So, okay, but I I think this is all really interesting. India obviously has a, a pretty significant role to play right now. It could have. a a pretty big impact on Russia's economic future in the near term. Uh, Its decision to expand trade with Russia right now could speak a lot about India's strength and independence and the influence of the United States or the lack thereof, right? Because the U.S. is scolding Delhi for having Lavrov there at all. And also, you know, India's relationship with China is complicated. Yes, it is. But to the extent that there is a sort of you know, quote unquote Western, like a a Western block forming and a Russia plus China block forming, Uh, which way India goes and how independent its course can be will really say a lot about whether we are. I mean, I think maybe India is a pivotal, you know, is this going to be a bipolar world? Is this going to be a multipolar world? Um, I I think that that is there's a lot to watch there, I think.
1: There is. And I think that we've largely taken India for granted uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. India has historically had very close relations with Russia and before Russia with the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. just like Pakistan has had very close relations with China and sort of on again, off again relations with the United States. So we just assume that, you know, Bill Clinton made a, a trip to China or a trip to India rather in the 90s and things got better and. And then Modi came here when Trump was president and we just thought, okay, well, we're friends with the Indians now. But it doesn't really work that way. We don't live in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They live in that neighborhood and they have to maintain good relations with the with the Russians and at least proper and appropriate relations with the Chinese and the Pakistanis. So it's far more complicated than we realize and and give the situation credit for being.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting um, to watch. Uh we've also got a lot of interesting oil and gas news. We have Biden. Now, this morning, the reports were that Biden is going to release up to a million barrels of oil a day from its strategic petroleum reserve. So I don't think that announcement has been formally made yet, uh, but that is what is expected. This would be the largest release from strategic stocks in history. This is according to RBC Capital Markets. And they're also apparently, and this uh, comes from reporting in Reuters yesterday that was citing uh, anonymous officials. They're considering lifting limits on adding ethanol to gasoline in the summer because I guess high ethanol, high ethanol levels in gas are linked to smog, but they also make gas cheaper. And that is what the administration is going for. So it doesn't get completely wiped out politically because of high gas prices here. Not going to make anybody who's worried about climate change very happy. And you know, I can see the argument that you would put forth if you were a Democrat to say, look, we have to stay in power so we can bring our long term plans to fruition. It's just, we just haven't seen a lot of that when it comes to climate from this administration. Right. They were supposed to. Pa- the, that right. big, the investment plan didn't have a lot of climate stuff in it. It was supposed to be in the big social spending plan of mm-hmm. the, the you know, bifurcated build back better. Didn't end up happening, and so I don't know how much I don't know how long you can credibly make that argument that hey we're going to do it next time.
1: Yeah, I'm disappointed. I mean, this is getting maybe a little bit down in the weeds, but I'm disappointed by the White House's Office of Congressional Affairs. Uh, it, It seems to me that you know when you've got when you've got a president who spent his entire adult life as a member of Congress, and you have a vice president who was also a member of Congress, you should have the best congressional affairs team that can possibly be assembled. And they don't. They don't. I mean, you should have this team on Capitol Hill all the time lobbying every important member of the House and the Senate. And they don't. We we just see, you know, for example, this bifurcated bill that even having been bifurcated is not uh, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere.
0: Yeah. And uh I mean, maybe there is maybe there is something to the criticism of of this administration in terms of messaging and communication. Messaging I'm surprised. is a problem. For I mean, them. I think that I think content and and concrete action is more of a problem. Uh, but I don't. Yeah, I agree. I do, I don't think their communication and messaging has necessarily been that great. Yeah, I agree. It's a also, problem. I I have to also preview one of my favorite stories of the day. Not favorite, but like the thing that just grabbed me. We we are going to talk about this stories. later. But um. <laughs> The the there are a lot of interesting media stories today. We're going to talk about Mick Mulvaney going to CBS, uh, CBS, which I don't Uh, understand at all. Twitter user in the UK being punished by a court for tweeting something offensive. Not mind you, like not racist. No, no. Not like calling for violence or anything. Just just in poor taste.
1: You know, that's it right there. It was in poor taste. It wasn't even so much offensive as as it was dumb.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, exp- you know, expresses a certain like a, the, the, the a fringe edge of an ideology. Yes. Um, but the most egregious, I think, is the Washington Post exhorting YouTube to hold the line in Russia. Mm-hmm. And the irony is palpable. Right. You have uh, this is the Washington Post saying, hey, look, media is increasingly restricted in Russia. But thank God YouTube remains carrying information that makes the Russian government look bad or that they'd rather not have in headlines to the people that need it, despite fines the government is threatening, despite their complaints to take down content. And then I was like, okay, you know, media is restricted in in Russia. Russia is not like a a paragon of free press. So I went to that. I was like, what are they? What exactly are they complaining about? What content do they want to restrict? The example offered. I'm sure there are other examples, but the example is like, oh, they want them to take down Azov Battalion video. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, you want, the yeah. Russian government wants exactly. to take down Nazi videos? That's the only? Anyway, so YouTube is saying, <sighs> this, or sorry, Washington Post is saying, uh, God bless YouTube. They need to keep doing this. Other tech companies have buckled down, but they need to keep providing the citizens of Russia with information that their government doesn't want them to have. And I guess it's cool to do that in Russia. But it's not cool to do that in the United States. In the United States, what you should have is the, the U.S. government telling YouTube uh, to get channels off the air uh, whose content they don't like or whose delivery they don't like. Yes. Because one government has the little TM truth trademark there over in the corner and the other one doesn't. I want to actually re- read you a paragraph that, again, was in a newspaper, which is right supposed to be in search of truth and impartiality and the rest. The Ukraine crisis has put U.S. technology companies to the test. They haven't gotten everything right. Processes and policies have been opaque and outcomes spotty. I'm going to stop there. If, if this was a credible <laughs> paper, they might say, unfortunately, YouTube has caved to the U.S. government, but right. it is at least performing a vital service elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that wasn't it. Nope. Uh, here's here's what they did wrong. YouTube has permitted some posts that further Russia's lies and repression and removed other posts fighting them. Most notably, it purged independent broadcaster Echo of Moscow from its site before restoring the station in response to criticism. So what's happened, John, is YouTube has not done a good enough job of presenting one one point of view, one ideology. It's not done a good enough job of following State Department orders. This is... eh. It's pretty bleak. This is the editorial page of a nationally and significant these are supposed newspaper. supposed to be
1: some of the most important and sophisticated newspaper editors <laughs> yeah, in America.
0: it is bad. <laughs> I mean, and this is not like, I, I don't, I was just astonished. I was really astonished at the the criticism that they mustered of, of the Russian government and its record on censorship. There's a lot. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more there to criticize than they want you to take off as a battalion. Oh, yeah. is. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We, we are going to talk about that in a little bit more detail because I think that is just a grim picture of the state of, of media and propaganda in the U.S. Also grim, I suspect, is the Pentagon working on AI decision making in battle. This troubles me yeah. very much. I mean, it's early days. It, it, it they're, is. they're sort of building the process. But it, it again is sort of this idea that technology can eliminate human biases. And I just don't think that is demonstrated in the way that it is used and the effects it has in the world. You know, there's
1: an episode of Star Trek that's apropos of this conversation where these two civilizations, these two civilizations that are so advanced and so sophisticated that they've come to an agreement that when they want to fight a war, rather than to launch rockets or missiles or bombs and destroy each other's infrastructure, they just uh, have a computer run a war scenario and the computer will say, well, if there had been a battle, you would have lost 2,000 people. You would have lost 5,000 people. And then if it's your turn from the lottery, you have to just show up and go to the incinerator and, and you're incinerated, right? And that way they have the body count, but they haven't messed up the, the infrastructure. The buildings are still standing. There was no bomb. Oh, wow. Right? There was no rocket. That's. It seems like that's where we're getting. We're talking about these robot dogs that scare the daylights out of yeah. me from Black Mirror and AI running uh, battles now, managing battles. I mean,
0: how it's
1: not good. advanced is this
0: going to end up being? I don't it's think scary. it's scary. I don't think it's good. And I don't think it does actually ha- have the effect of removing that bias. I just think I agree. Th- yeah, I, I don't like it. Uh, There is some good news. We're going to talk about the Biden DOJ throwing its support behind some antitrust legislation that will affect the tech sector. We are, of course, going to talk about Ukraine, where there is supposed to be a ceasefire taking place in um, Mariupol. Yes. Though it is not it's not clear how well that's going. That's right. U.S. media seem to be dismayed that Russian troops are indeed pulling back from Kiev. But uh, as I, I wrote here, they can take heart at news that nothing much else has come from peace talks in Turkey other than a willingness to keep talking, which is maybe a little hard on them. But it is a pretty bloodthirsty media uh, environment we are existing in right now. And,
1: and there was a, a piece just I saw it just as I was coming into the uh, to the studio to start the show, saying that um, a Turkish official is saying that in the next two or three weeks, the Russian and Ukrainian foreign ministers will be meeting face-to-face in Istanbul. So they expect at least that much progress that it's going to warrant a high-level meeting. So
0: So that's good, right? It's it's good, good. and I would like to see more of it. We've got some news about inflation coming up later. Uh, We've got some (laughs) news... really terrible local news uh, about discrimination against Native Americans in uh, South Dakota. But I'll get to that at of the all, end of the show. I think we'll. Of all places. If, yeah. I it, read
1: that article. It was infuriating. Oh,
0: we'll, we'll tell you about it uh, before we get out of here for the day. But we're going to take a quick break now and come back with our first guest. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witty. A Defense Department official told the Associated Press yesterday that Russian President Vladimir Putin was being misled by his generals, who were afraid to tell him about military setbacks in the war against Ukraine. And a White House spokesman reiterated this information, saying that it was based on recently declassified intelligence. But the Times of Israel ran the same story yesterday, saying that its sources were Ukrainian officials, press, and a Washington based think tank. The value of the ruble is surging to levels higher than it was before the war started, despite the fact that sanctions should have devastated the currency by now. The region of South Ossetia will hold a referendum to decide whether to become a part of Russia. And there doesn't seem to be any major move forward in peace talks in Istanbul, at least over the last day and a half. We're joined by Dr. Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University here in Washington, D.C., and he's an expert on 20th century history. He's the author of many books, including the award-winning The Untold History of the United States. Welcome back, Peter. Hey, John. Good to be with you, Michelle. So happy that you've joined us, Peter. I wanted to begin with this Associated Press uh, story. As a former intelligence officer, this story doesn't make any sense to me at all. If the CIA had a source close to the Russian military leadership, for example, that source's information would be so highly classified that it would most likely be eyes only for the president, the secretaries of state and defense, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff but the administration is saying that it's been declassified. And the Times of Israel says that it's actually just from the Ukrainian government and from the press. Can you give us your assessment of the information and whether or not it should be believed?
2: Well, John, as you know, the president can declassify anything he wants. Anything. And we saw Trump do that on a a few occasions. So it is possible that this was highly classified and sensitive information, and it was declassified by by Biden uh, in order to achieve a certain effect. It could be part of a psychological warfare operation that the US is waging against Putin. Um, however, it, it struck me from the beginning as absurd. I mean, Putin may be a jerk, but he's not a dope. Right. and He would not, he lives in a bubble of sorts, and we've seen that, but as this war, this invasion is ongoing, he's got to have access to information, and he's not so stupid to allow himself to be fed nonsense by the people around him on a prolonged basis. I think he was either delusional or misinformed going into this war. I think he had expectations that were not uh, in accord with reality. I think the things he was saying about genocide in the Donbass were absurd. Uh, His beliefs about taking uh, Kiev in two to three days, to the extent he held those views. What he was saying about Ukraine being run by neo-Nazis and drug dealers. I mean, these are crazy ideas. And to see Putin quite so unhinged was, for me, quite shocking, because he's a guy who's not a big risk taker. And he's, you know, I might agree with him or disagree with him on certain issues, but he never seemed to be off in la-la land like that. Uh, However, I'm sure he's getting accurate intelligence. I'm sure people around him don't want to give him uh, the... Absolute truth on what's going on because things are going very, very badly, and we saw the same thing in the U.S. during the Vietnam War. Yes, uh, during our other invasions, people are, are loath to give their higher ups the truth about what's happening in in these kinds of situations when wars are going terribly. And in fact, as we've seen, every invasion goes terribly to a large extent. When I mean, the United States was involved with in Vietnam for uh, for what, how many, well, it depends on where you want to trace it back to 54. We were supporting the French back from 50, paying for the French war. Yeah, that's right. The war doesn't end until 75. You know, in that war, I told my students about it last night. When McNamara came into my class some years ago, McNamara, Secretary of Defense, who's considered the architect of the Vietnam War, he said to my students that he now accepts that 3.8 million Vietnamese died in the war. Oh, my God. And, and that, you know, it's... That's mind-boggling, right? But you, what's happening in you, that does not mean just the fact that it's only a few thousand in Ukraine does not mean that this is not horrific and a crime and with the potential to become much worse. But we have to have some sense of proportion when we're talking about these kinds of atrocities.
1: Peter, let's talk a minute about these peace talks. We're not getting a ton of information out of Istanbul. And there doesn't seem to have been a whole lot of progress in the last two days. It seems that the two sides are stuck um, exactly where everybody thought they'd be stuck. And that would be over the fact that Russia wants territory and Ukraine wants security guarantees. Are the two sides flexible enough to come up with an agreement, do you think? Or does this war need to be fought for a longer period of time before the two sides, or at least one of the sides, is, is pushed to the table. Uh,
2: sadly, it looks like this is going to be prolonged. Uh, right now, there might be a stalemate around Kyiv, and even Kharkiv to some extent, but there's not a stalemate in other places. And so, uh, so it's not, it looks like there's not going to be a clear-cut winner Uh, The Ukrainians are fighting doggedly and heroically. And they are, as as people often do, as as the United States encountered in all of our invasions, uh, people fight to protect their homeland. As Ho Chi Minh uh, said, the United States cannot stay in Vietnam forever, but Vietnam must stay in Vietnam forever. So they were willing to take... The kind of devastating punishment that has not been seen since World War II. And I think the Ukrainians feel similarly motivated. Anybody who told Putin that the Ukrainians really were going to welcome Russians as liberators, as the Americans believed in Iraq, in Iraq. Uh, was being fed, uh, you know, it, it's, that's wrong and it doesn't happen. And it, it, it's not going to happen. And in this case, Ukrainians are going to resist. Uh, that's my my concern and fear. I mean, a worst-case scenario for me, several years down the line, or even a year down the line, or six months down the line, we'll have tens of thousands of dead Ukrainians, thousands of dead Russians, cities leveled, and we're going to end up with the same solution that we ha- could get maybe today or next week, and the, and possibly if people had been wiser. We could have come up with this solution before the invasion actually started. That we didn't have the wisdom. And that's what we see in all of these wars. They grind on, and they change strategy, and the people are fed, are used as cannon fodder, and and uh, the the human effects of these wars is, you know, un, unthinkable. Um, so I, I would I would rather uh, preempt that and, and figure out what the end game is going to be and reach that compromise solution now, because this war, like other wars, are in nobody's interest. There are clearly people in the United States and in Europe who wanna see Russia punished, who wanna see Russia weakened, who wanna see Russia pay an enormous long-term price. And uh, you know, and I could understand that's why some of them might feel that way, given Russia's aggression, but they didn't say that or think that way when the U.S. was invading countries. You never heard talk about the world gathering and to sanction the United States or to punish the United States for these for these invasions. And maybe if they had, we would learn lessons and and not jump into them quite so quickly. Maybe the Russians going to learn a lesson from this, uh, and I certainly hope that they do. But. Uh, you know i'm not in that camp that wants to see russia humiliated leveled i'm happy to see the russian oligarchs get sanctioned take away their yachts take away their private planes take away their villas you know i'm i'm all in favor of that but uh i don't want to see the russian people get get pummeled for for this the way that the way it's happening although i mean they they bear responsibility in the same sense the americans did uh, the Americans, even after the My, My Lai Massacre, when we went in there and you know w- murdered 500 women and children, raped the women, scalped people, went on for hours. People took lunch breaks and cigarette breaks in the middle of the massacre and came back to, to kill more people. After that, 65% of the American people said that they weren't upset about the massacre at, at My Lai. You know, so do, do people bear responsibility? Do nations bear responsibility? that you know, was a big debate we had about Germany after World War II, and I think that they do bear some responsibility, even if they're not getting honest information, as we see happening in Russia right now. People are being fed government propaganda and without, with little access to real truth about what's happening. Uh, but you know, in the long run, you can't, you shouldn't, and can't punish entire Populations. Would I like to see Bush and Cheney uh, brought before the, you know, the International Criminal Court uh, uh, and sanctioned in that way? Kissinger, Putin. Yeah, I think if we did that to these leaders who start wars, there's nothing you can do. More that's a more of a crime against humanity than starting these wars. And uh, and then this one, where the possibility of an expanded war and even nuclear war. And direct nuclear threats being made by Russian leaders, that is really beyond the pale of of acceptability.
1: Yes. I want to ask you about this issue of security guarantees. On the surface of things, it seems like security guarantees for Ukraine would be tantamount to de facto NATO membership. If NATO would be the ones to guarantee Ukrainian security, how is that any different from essentially NATO membership? and And could that ever be acceptable to the
2: Russians? Well, I wouldn't see the, the they try to finesse the point by not having it be NATO, having it be individual countries, the United States, Britain, Germany, maybe France uh, and Russia. So if Russia is part of the mix guaranteeing Ukrainian security, maybe on some in some way they'll be it won't seem like NATO, it can't be NATO, you're right. Could it be something else? Maybe if it's not the United States, maybe if it's France, Germany, and Russia, all guaranteeing it. I don't know how that works in in practice, but clearly Ukrainians want, and understandably, I mean, I can understand from a Ukrainian standpoint why they want to be part of NATO. I could understand why the Europeans want to be part of NATO. And, you know, and the sad thing is that the Ukrainians didn't want to be part of NATO. Uh, Even back in 2013, Ukrainians did not want to be part of NATO uh, and they didn't want to be part of Russia and they wanted to deal with both sides. But now, based on Russia's policy over the last eight years, there's strong, much stronger pro-NATO sentiment in Ukraine. Uh, and other places also. I mean, Putin's strategy. If I could devise a strategy for Russia that would be, achieve the opposite of what Putin says he wants, I would do exactly what Putin's doing. I think this is very short-sighted, uh, and the effects on Russia's economy, Russia's geopolitics, Russia's alliances, Russia's image in the world uh, have have been devastating. I don't see Russia coming out of this. They might cut some more territory in Ukraine, but they're not coming out of this looking good. But then again, the world has short memory. You know, look, Russia, Germany, Japan, the United States—the aggressors—over the years uh, end up back on their feet. So it doesn't have to be uh, the death sentence for Russia forever. But there are certain people in the West who would love to see that be the case.
1: I want to ask you next about. A red line for for Ukraine. The Ukrainians are worried. At least they appear to be worried that if this war continues to drag on, uh, they could lose access to uh, to the Black Sea. Uh, do you see a scenario where there is an agreement possible between the Ukrainians and the Russians, where the Ukrainians would sacrifice uh, Crimea? so long as they can have these security guarantees with Odessa that would continue to give them access to the sea? Is that
2: possible? Yes, I think it's possible. In Odessa, the, the Russians are, are being stuck in Nikolaev, and they're not able to advance past Nikolaev, which they need to do if they want to get to Odessa. Odessa is a city of a million people. They are heavily fortified. The Russian landing at sea would be very, very costly. And given the fact that they've shown so little ability to seize the cities, actually, and they can level Mariupol, but they still haven't effectively surrendered to the Russians. I I can't see them at this point taking Odessa. So there'll be... From the beginning, Zelensky was saying that he's willing to uh, accept neutrality and give up on NATO membership. I think that's a given. That's going to be part of the final agreement. He says he's not willing to give up territory. However, uh, the Russians already have that territory, and the Russians had that before the invasion started. They're not giving that up. Uh, Right now, they're effectively trying to encircle Ukrainian armed forces who are fighting in the Donbass. And so they're coming down from the north. Uh, So Russia is in a position to, I assume, take the rest of the Donbass. And and so I think that even if Ukraine does not want to formally recognize that in uh, the settlement, uh, it's, it's a, that's a de facto reality, and I, I, I hope that that's not ultimately a stumbling block. They can agree to disagree. I, I mean, there's ways for them to finesse that also. I hope they do that, and I hope they do that very, very quickly. Clearly, as you were saying before, the negotiations have not gone anywhere yet, and Putin's response from what I've seen to the terms that were initially proposed by ukraine in turkey was you know he was outraged uh, so th- we're not that close yet no i i'm hoping that there are others who will put more pressure on putin the way the united states camp i would i wish that biden instead of calling putin a killer and a war criminal and you know and 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 instead of his macho talk i wish he would get on the phone with putin and begin to discuss uh, an off ramp in which the us would agree to ease sanctions and and try to work back some of these hostilities I mean, you know biden came to office and his goal was to focus on china how I mean, he's not the first one to say he wanted to do that but he did get the United States out of Afghanistan in the hopes that he could finally shift again or pivot to the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific. That was his goal. The people in his administration, all these people from the Center for New American Security, Campbell and others, were very focused on, on China. And that's mm-hmm. what they wanted. Uh, they weren't looking forward to this war. And maybe they can see that this is, uh, necessary for them to get back on track to do other bad things that they have in mind vis-a-vis China. That would also be, in my view, the wrong approach to how we have to deal with creating a world of uh, a little more sanity and peace.
1: I wanted to ask you, Peter, about something we learned yesterday about uh, the Germans. The, they are going to pay for Russian gas in euros by sending the money to Gazprom Bank. This was revelatory for me. Is, is Gazprom Bank not sanctioned? Why doesn't every European com- country just simply pay for its its Russian gas in euros through Gazprom?
2: You know, I don't know. I, I know that the British have definitely sanctioned Gazprom, and I've seen uh-huh. that the Americans have sanctioned Gazprom and right. Gazprom Bank. Uh, so I don't know why that, but the Europeans, you know, one of the long-term effects, we don't know. Biden came to office saying he's going to repair the damage that Trump did with Europe. And he seemed to be doing a good job. He's rallied a lot of support from the Europeans and from NATO, and done a lot of damage control and repaired things that 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 Trump had, had, mess, had messed up in that sense. But the Europeans have very, very different interests. Europe gets 41% of its natural gas from Russia, gets about a third of its oil from Russia, uh, at least 25%. And they are not quite so ready you see, who are the ones who are pushing for Europe not to deal with Russia? It's the U.S. and Britain, who are much less affected by uh, Russia, imports from Russia. So the Europeans, other Europeans, especially the Germans, have made clear that they're not willing to go along with this. And, you know, these rifts will only widen. Putin has said that the, if the Europeans don't start dealing in rubles by tomorrow— then they're gonna get cut off from the oil and gas. We're already seeing very, very high inflation rates in Europe, we're seeing economic impacts already in Europe, and we're seeing that also in the United States. One of the ironies, of course, is that Biden, by rallying everybody with these sanctions and the economic effects, it's also affecting the United States. And the oil prices are, are way up. Biden could, by doing this, be undermining his own chances or Democrats' chances in 2022 mm-hmm. and his own mm-hmm. chances in 2024. The irony could be that a lot of what Biden's doing is going to bring Trump back in, which again some of the Russians are saying that they would prefer. Uh, I never. I when I was in Russia seven times before the 20 as uh, 2016 election, and I always said to the Russians, "You think you want Trump? Well." You're in for a big surprise. Trump is going to be worse for, the, for you than even Hillary Clinton would be. And the Russians came around to uh, understanding that in terms of the sanctions. Uh, Trump was no friend to anybody except Trump and his family, perhaps. But um, certainly he's not in, in Russia's long-term interest. And I'm afraid right now Putin isn't either. You know, 20, I've got a new policy now. 21 years is the limit. Uh, if you go past 21 years, <laughs> how you go off the deep end. Uh, and, 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 but the problem is who's in the wings in Russia. Yeah. We don't even know. Medvedev is worse. Yes. The things come out of Medvedev's mouth. Uh, and Lavrov has been deeply discredited. Uh, I mean, I don't know who, who there is a possible successor who would actually be even better than Putin. So, I mean, I think we're, the world is in for some hard times. And one of the things that I hate seeing is that this has not only energized, but legitimized the militarists around the planet. You look at Biden's new proposed budget. Is there a lot of money there for childcare and the, you know, the build back better things that Biden was talking about that we actually need in this country? No, the money isn't there for more military spending, Germany, vast increase in military spending, all across the world. Now people are doing that, and not only military spending, but it's re-legitimized nuclear. And, and you know, it's it's the the lesson that people are learning is that they do need nuclear weapons, and if they don't have them, they're vulnerable to being invaded. Mm-hmm. And so instead of going the direction we need to go to reduce the nuclear stockpiles and and the, the arms. Um, we're going the opposite direction, so I mean I'm furious with Putin because of the impact this is having globally in in terms of setting us back whatever progress we thought we had made in recent years toward creating a, a saner friendlier world that could focus on climate change and global poverty and you know disarmament uh, with the nuclear ban treaty of the United Nations that momentum has been lost, and now the militarists in every country have gained greater and greater status and legitimacy.
1: We will leave it there. That was the voice of Dr. Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University in Washington, and he's an expert on 20th century history. He's the author of many books, including the award-winning The Untold History of the United States. You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll take a short break and come right back. Stay tuned.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty here with John Kiriakou talking a little bit now about uh, South Asia, Mm -hmm. East Asia, and the pivotal role uh, some countries in that region could play in in the next coming years. We're also going to try and get into uh, what exactly is going on in North Korea. And importantly, I think, the way it's being presented because yes. those two things are are they have some overlap but they are not exactly the same I agree Joining us for this conversation is KJ No he's a scholar journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific he's also a member of Veterans for Peace KJ thanks for being here Thank you pleasure to be with you. I want to get into um, India right now and the, the role that India could be playing in the near future when it comes to geopolitics. You have both the Russian and the British foreign ministers in India right now, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, Sergei Lavrov is there, uh, you know, uh, presumably pushing for the smooth functioning of both BRICS and the Russia-India-China trilateral, trilateral format. He is uh, promoting defense and economic ties. He obviously is going to want India to continue buying Russian oil and gas and perhaps buy more. And I am wondering, you know, how significant you think this particular meeting is? I think it's
3: very, very significant. India is a key player, uh, both in the Quad as, uh, you know, one of the arms of the uh, Asian NATO against China to contain China, to take it down. And on the other hand, it has historically... Very very close ties with Russia, starting from 1955. Uh, you know, Russia or the USSR slash Russia has always been a very very strong ally of India. Currently, India gets 85 percent of its oil. And eighty-five percent of its weapons uh, from the Russians, so that's you know that's not easy to replace. Mm-hmm. And as we know, because of the sanctions on Ukraine, uh, India did not go along with those sanctions, refused along with one hundred and fifty other countries, and it also refused to condemn Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So you can see that Russia is tilting strongly towards. Uh, India str- uh, tilting strongly towards Russia. The US, uh, I se- se- seriously doubt the US will able to be able to peel it off and force it uh, to be, you know, um, uh, you know, subcontracted to its own belligerent foreign policy against Russia. Uh, and what that does is it creates an opening for China because uh, Russia can mediate between China and India. And if those relationships will improve, that will shift the global. A balance of power uh, dramatically.
0: Yeah, I, I think the the impact, the potential impact here on India's relationship with China is really interesting, right? Because if there is a deepening division between India and, you know, w- what is referred to as the West, but is really sort of the United States and Western Europe and Australia, <laughs> you know, as you mentioned, 150 other countries have not really gone along with uh, Russia, uh, the, the United States punishment of Russia. I don't know. I earlier in the show, I sort of suggested that was that in the role that India plays here could kind of determine whether we are looking at a a bipolar world in the future or a multipolar world. and i and I wonder what you make of of that.
3: Yes, it's very possible a bipolar world or a multipolar world. If it is a bipolar world, this will involve China, Russia, India. Uh, the BRICS nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be multipolar. Uh, India is uh, ascending. It's becoming, uh, you know, a power in its own right. Thing that India knows or should know is that the U.S. is committed to global hegemony. It wants an an empire where it is at the apex, where it is the apex predator, and all the other countries are subordinate, are client states. If China or Russia were to be taken out, India would be next, and the Indian politicians should know that or should understand that. So in that sense, it is in India's interest, to support multipolarity, certainly the emerging bipolarity that that we see right now. And uh, and it has no interest, although the U.S. is trying very hard to threaten it, uh, to ally or to go along with the U.S. agenda from a strategic standpoint. What I see happening right now is the U.S. is throwing out some shaky sticks uh, and some uh, minuscule carrots uh, and I don't think India uh, will go along if they're thinking rationally. I think what will happen eventually is that the more the U.S. pushes, prods and tugs on India, the more it will be driven into Russia's arms, which means that eventually we will also be driven closer to China.
0: Mm-hmm. I also wonder what you make of the timing of having British Foreign Minister Liz Truss there who uh, is just, you know, speaking at an event saying uh, it's important to respect the decisions of sovereign nations. We're not going to try to tell India what to do. But very interesting timing to have Lavrov and Truss in India at the same time. Oh, yeah.
3: Yes. I mean, they're both tugging at India's sleeve. But that I think that really, you know, the heavy player in this arena is Lavrov. Uh, I think Liz Truss is uh, a lightweight. She's, you know, the yapping Uh, Chihuahua, you know, who is also looking for another, you know, kind of little trip abroad as as she is wont to. So I don't think that that will have a lot of influence. But certainly, uh, you know, she's trying to, you know, place herself on the world stage and pretend or act as a contender because she has, uh, you know, ambitions for being prime minister.
0: I also want to talk about the news of North Korea has been generating or that has been generated about North Korea recently. Uh, today, uh, there are two stories. One is that North Korea's ICBM launch last week that was supposedly of a of a new and updated version of its Hwasong missile was not actually a technological advance. Uh, the missile could still theoretically reach the United States. And so I'm not sure there's a, there's much of a difference. But I, I wanted to ask what you make of of this sort of hubbub over exactly what kind of ICBM was tested and the fact that, you know, you have a South Korean, anonymous South Korean official who is reporting this. You have some other analysis saying, you know, they're looking at the shadows and the angles of things to say, no, we think this is actually an older version of a missile. Uh, what, what do you make of, of all of this reporting about how advanced North Korea actually is, especially with the U.S. preoccupied with Ukraine and South Korea, uh, you know, about to usher in a new administration.
3: Yes, I mean, this is very important. I mean, you know, the arguing, haggling over minutiae is not that important. What we do know is that it was sent on a lofted trajectory, but it seems to have about 30% more capacity. Uh, That is, it can travel 30% farther, and the former FASAM-15 uh, launch uh, was capable of striking Washington, D.C. They're just showing that they have more capacity, uh, more distance, more range, and also it's, it's likely that this uh, um, uh, launch, this missile, can have multiple re-entry vehicles, which makes it that much harder to, um, you know, deter or to shoot down. But we also know uh, that it is a um, a liquid fueled uh, missile, which makes its actual deterrent capacity rather minimal because it would take hours to fuel. It could it would be in It could yes uh, a chat while it was fueling. But uh, the key thing to understand is that North Korea is operating on its own timetable. Sometimes it tests. Uh, You know, it launches or tests uh, to some kind of political event or political advantage or political opportunity. But essentially, it's working out on its own schedule, and it is uh, fundamentally committed to having a significant, effective nuclear deterrent. It sees this as an existential issue, largely because it's been faced with nuclear annihilation since 1950. Also, because it sees that the Biden administration is not a uh, good faith interlocutor. It's essentially uh, waiting for North Korea to collapse or to uh, or it will go back to see the John Bolton Libya approach, which the incoming president, Yoon sa has also uh, enumerated.
0: I want to talk about the incoming president in a minute. But but I also I have to say uh... The head, headline at CNN uh, is something along the lines of North Korea preparing another nuclear test, right? So you have a, a bunch of headlines following that saying, oh, North, North Korea might be preparing for another test. Then if you read the article, what you learn is that North Korea appears to have begun rebuilding processes at a nuclear test site that it partially destroyed and abandoned in 2018. And I think that this is really telling when it comes to how North Korea is is discussed in media. North Korea prepares for another nuclear test is scary and sort of puts the focus on Pyongyang and their uh, supposedly wild and irrational decisions. North Korea excavates, excavates nuclear test site abandoned as goodwill gesture in 2018 has a very different ring to it and, you know, would remind readers that it seemed for a time that we were making progress in this relationship and that North and South Korea were were warming their relationship. And I think, you know, I I think it's I think the distinction is important. And I I wanted to ask you about that and also about that activity and what it says to you. Yes.
3: Well, I think what the activity says is that North Korea is simply proceeding with its plan. It has a five-year plan to have a capable nuclear deterrent, but you're absolutely correct. The framing, uh, you know, is, uh, is always insidious and demonizing regarding North Korea. The simple fact is that North Korea came to the table as a good-faith interlocutor. It voluntarily uh, had a moratorium on missile launches. Uh, you know, for uh, for many years, for three years, and it also voluntarily abstained from any nuclear testing because it had hopes with the Trump administration that there could be some kind of breakthrough. What did nuclear? Uh, what did North Korea want? It wanted peace. The fundamental fact is that North Korea has sued the United States for peace. Since 1953, and the U.S. has always rebuffed and rejected it because it wants that tension in Northeast Asia, in particular because it wants to maintain, uh, you know, a containment strategy against uh, China there. And so North Korea, uh, in the past and in in recent years, has come to the table as a good faith interlocutor when talking about, you know, the agreed framework, the six-party talks, and the recently, you know— um, uh, scuffled uh, agreements with Trump. All of these were good faith efforts, and each time, and on every occasion, it was the U.S. that sabotaged and betrayed North Korea. So North Korea is, has essentially given up hope. It doesn't believe that uh, the West or the United States is going to negotiate in good faith. What they're going to do is they are going to complete their nuclear deterrence, their nuclear capacity, And then very possibly they may come back to the table, this time negotiating from a position of even greater strength.
0: And I want to talk also about the significance of the election in South Korea, uh, it was earlier in March, I believe, or at the end of February. Uh, We've sort of vaguely talked about Yoon Suk-yeol, who uh, campaigns, you know, in in contrast to the uh, outgoing administration, who camp, you know, campaigns on being less warm and engaged with North Korea. But I'm wondering uh, what other domestic concerns were significant in this election and and what it says about the state of, of North Korea right now, or sorry, South Korea right now.
3: Well, it speaks to the uh, tremendous divisions and troubles that South Korea is having. And I would say that a lot of this is a U.S. influence or U.S. pressure because the Moon presidency was drifting away from the U.S. grasp. That is, South Korea since 1948, or really since 1945, has always been a client vassal state of the United States. The Moon administration, uh, you know, with its popular mandate, was drifting away from that, and it was, uh, you know, having clearly good relations with China. U.S. needs uh, South Korea as a launching pad, as a force projection pla- platform, and as a containment uh, 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 a part of of their uh, of, of their arc of encirclement against China, and so. Uh, Moon's rapprochement with China and North Korea was very, very poorly viewed. uh, 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 Last year, uh, as we were moving towards uh, the um, the South Korean election, there were rumblings in Congress of, you know, the kind of— color revolution type of uh, discourse or the discourse that precedes the type of color revolution preparation that you see it's arguing that the Moon administration and its party were dictators, you know, that they could not be allowed to, you know, coexist with the United States. All of that is background, but Yun himself ran on an openly, Misogynistic platform. He said that he would prosecute women who made fraudulent Me Too accusations. He promised to destroy the Ministry of Gender Equality. Uh, You know, he said that he would bring back a 120 hour work week, get rid of the 52 hour work week that Moon had previously uh, implemented, remove the minimum wage. And he said that he would run a government, a government of prosecutors. And so this is a very frightening individual. He's a mixture of Donald Trump with his misogyny, but also he's like John Bolton, who threatens a preemptive strike on North Korea and wants to place nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula he's also like J. Edgar Hoover, because uh, he has, uh, you know, as the office of the Supreme Prosecutor, apparently he has a dirty file on everybody and uh, and has threatened to use it against all of his opponents.
0: KG, can you tell us in one minute, what is the background for all of this uh, gender upheaval in South Korea that, that came to fruition in this election?
3: Well, uh, you know, Korea is traditionally a very patriarchal uh, Confucian society. And there are large numbers of young men who have been forced out of the uh, economic sphere because of economic troubles. And as a result of that, they've also been pushed out of the marriage and dating pool. And so you have, you know, an army of young men in their 20s and early 30s who are essentially, uh, you know, infuriated, misogynistic incels. And uh, Lee jae sorry, uh, uh, Yoon Seok-yeol took uh, this constituency, milked it, and ran it into a successful presidential campaign. It was uh, really a squeaker of a campaign, you know, uh, just a fraction of a percentage point. But he was able to milk that and turn that into a political success. And I assure you that women and also men of conscience uh, are trembling. They're horrified. At, at what has transpired in in South Korea not simply on the gender front but on the entire political front.
0: KJ, that timing was absolutely perfect. thank you so much always appreciate it. That was scholar and journalist KJ No. Thank you for joining us KJ and the rest of you thank you for listening. We are listening to political misfits. we're on Radio Sputnik. we're live in DC and we're coming right back.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriaku here with my co-host Michelle Whitty. The Washington Post editorial board today ran an editorial calling on YouTube to stand up to Russian efforts to shut it down or to demand that it remove pro-Ukrainian videos. Really, they were pro-Azov Battalion videos. It laments the fact that most social media platforms have been banned in Russia, but oddly, it doesn't see the problem with demanding that a private company do the U.S. government's bidding or that the Washington Post is doing the U.S. government's bidding. Meanwhile, there are other major developments in the media. CBS staff members are protesting against the network's decision to hire former Trump acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney as a talking head, I'd like to know what led them to that decision.
0: I mean, isn't the trying to want access to the RNC, right? Yeah, I, mean, I
1: think that's what it is. Politico is reporting on what it's called, and what in what it's calling a, an enthusiasm gap for Democrats in the upcoming midterm elections. We'll talk about that. And Turkish prosecutors have decided that they won't try Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi's killers or alleged killers, after all. The Turkish position is now that the accused murderers should be tried in Saudi Arabia, which is known for its fair and impartial judiciary.
0: Mm.
1: Well, we're going to talk about all that and more with journalist and political analyst Caleb Moppen. Welcome back, Caleb. Sure. Glad to be here. I'm so mad at the Turks right now, but that's not where we're going to start. You, John, mad the Turks? <laughs> I'm biased, I admit it. Yesterday, I talked about occupied Constantinople. Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with this Washington Post editorial. Caleb, I was struck by its faux toughness, demanding that YouTube stand up to Russia and mocking the Russian government for lashing out after RT was put out of business and Sputnik was severely restricted. Why the big uproar from the Post? What's the Post so afraid of?
4: Over the past five or six years, we've been seeing articles like this, uh, demanding more censorship from YouTube, from Twitter, from Facebook. Mm. This has just been a steady drumbeat uh, that you know they're not doing enough to shut down problematic political views. They're not doing enough to shut down. Uh, voices that are critical of U.S. foreign policy. They have a responsibility to silence and suppress certain views and promote others. And it's quite disturbing. And it always comes from mainstream outlets that are kind of afraid uh, that their narrative is being challenged and that more and more Americans are looking for the other side of the story. Um, and it, it puts the tech giants in this weird position Because on the one hand, yes, they want to, you know, have a good relationship with the American government and they tend to be staffed by people who share the mainstream media's perspective. But on the other hand, they know that the more that they push dissident views off of their platforms, the more alternative platforms are going to grow. Mm -hmm. And the more that people that are looking for alternative views will just stop looking on YouTube and stop looking on Facebook and stop looking on Twitter and stop looking on outlets that are not allowing those views. And so, there's a, a fear that that their monopoly could be challenged by this. Um, and I mean, the YouTube algorithms, I must say the search engine of YouTube is just awful. It's abysmal. Uh, you type in one thing and then you get a whole bunch of, a bunch of things trying to tell you something else trying to push politics on you mm-hmm. or something i mean you can't mm-hmm. find videos it is very difficult to find the videos you're looking for because they're so they're they're really trying to accommodate this desire for i don't know if you want to call it political correctness or anti-conspiratorialism or fact checker approval or, or whatever you want to call it but that you can't find the videos you're looking for without, uh, without them, you know, pushing things on you. I mean, you'll search and you you get things that are completely unrelated, like something you might be interested in based on previous searches has nothing to do with what you search. I mean, you cannot find videos. You can type in the exact title of a video and it won't come up because they're so concerned with playing politics. Very frustrating.
1: Oh my God. That's so true. I go on YouTube all the time, but it's only for two things. I listen to Greek folk music and after dinner, if there's nothing on TV, I watch dash cam car crash videos.
0: What? What? Sorry. <laughs> Just stop the rest of the show. Just talk about your YouTube viewing habits. That's ridiculous.
1: I like to shout at the TV like, you morons. How can you not see an 18-wheeler coming out of there, out of the parking lot? All right? Right. When it's you put fun. it that way, it sounds cathartic, actually. <laughs> but anyway, I, Caleb's right. Where, where my recommendations should be Greek folk music and car crash videos it's it's all politics. And I don't I don't care what some nobody's you know thoughts on X, Y, Z international issue is. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to watch his two hour video that he made in the basement of his house, but it's forcing it on me. Yeah. And the, the Washington Post apparently wants more of that. And for YouTube to take on the Russians, yeah, like I- this editorial, it wasn't it wasn't written to the White House, like, listen, White House, you need to be tougher with the Russians and you need to do A, B and C. It was to YouTube. Like it's YouTube's responsibility.
0: I mean, it is it is very clearly and specifically a cry for YouTube to uh, c- continue to do the work of delivering uh, the the message of the U.S. State Department to the world, yes. and not do the thing that you know users understand it to be, which is a sort of social media platform where people can put up videos on different subjects that is are not controlled. Uh, or or representing a particular ideology, but can be about whatever, as long as they fall within, you know, free free speech and hate speech guidelines. Right. And so that, I think, is what is really significant about this editorial. It is saying, you know, we want this media platform to deliver a specific message in a specific context. That's what it's for. We've got no we at The Washington Post have absolutely no problem with that. I, I think it's outrageous.
1: I think you're exactly right. Uh, Caleb, help me understand this decision to offer Mick Mulvaney a job as a talking head on CBS. Like there's not one responsible conservative that they can turn to. They have to they have to go to Mick Mulvaney. This is this has actually led people to to stage so far limited walkouts at CBS. And um, it's a news story. What's behind this decision? I mean, they're anticipating it looks not very good
4: for the Democrats coming into the midterms. Yeah. And, you know, this is a figure from the Trump administration. And Trump politics, uh, regardless of our disapproval, is where the Republican Party is at, mostly. I mean, the Republican Party is very much the Trump Party at this point. Uh, and so if they're going to be strategic and they are going to try and, you know, get access and also give some representation to the Trump camp, this guy uh, is probably probably a good pick for them. Now, you know, uh, you know, you could say, well, why not someone who's more of like a Mitt Romney kind of Republican? But honestly, that's just not where most Republicans are at. And if the Republicans are going to sweep, it's going to be a victory for his kind of politics, not for Mitt Romney's kind of politics. So, you know, there's a little bit of bit of honesty there. Um, the fact that there's protests around it is quite interesting because, I mean, Yes, I mean, obviously, this is a controversial person who said many offensive things, just like the previous president. Um, but it kind of does make sense that you know, in, in a, you know, we have a a two party system here in the United States. I wish there were more parties represented, not just Democrats and Republicans. But it used to be that it was kind of assumed that you would have a Democrat and you'd have a Republican, you'd have both sides. Mm-hmm. But now there is this feeling on the part of of Democrats that if you engage with the other side, if you bring up a voice from the other side, you were somehow committing a crime. Uh, you were somehow how, you know, platforming a bad, you know, there's a morality, you know, attack. Right. And it used to be that way. uh, You know, sometimes Fox, you know, had this attitude like, oh, if you're a Democrat, that means you hate America. You're (laughs) a traitor and you're with the terrorists. We're almost kind of getting that kind of attitude now coming from the Democrats. Right. That if you if you give a platform to a Republican and they're not a, you know, a kind of watered down moderate Republican or neoconservative Republican, you are therefore complicit in horrendous crimes or something. And, that's generally not how media outlets, you know, used to view these things. It used to be understood that if there's a certain viewpoint, it's widespread among the population. Uh, just from a marketing perspective and from a kind of, you know, media responsibility, journalist ethics perspective, you need to have somebody who gives a, a voice to that perspective. As as egregious as it may be, uh, you know, it was just kind of your responsibility to do that. But that seems to be lost. We are very much entering this field of partisan politics where – You know, if you give a platform to certain views, there's mass outrage. uh, And that's a very odd turn in American politics.
1: Yeah. You know, it wasn't too long ago that James Carville and Mary Madeline were were the two regulars, for example, on CNN. Married couple disagreed on literally every political issue that there was. He worked for the Democrats. She worked for the Republicans. And it was it was good television. It was good analysis. And you just don't see that anymore.
4: Sure. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, the political distance uh, between the two camps is is quite extreme. And, you know, Carvo is a strategist and he would get on there. And, yeah, the two of them had different views, but it was like they were kind of playing the same game. It's almost like sports. Right. And it's like they were coaching different teams, but they're they're talking mainly about the maneuvers that the teams do and and those kinds of things. But it seems like now we have entered, you know, some new territory where there is kind of, you know, a much deeper polarization Uh, And there's kind of a uh, really an identity crisis in the country. What are we as a country? Where are we going? What should our focus be? And that changes a lot.
1: It it looks like the Democrats, as you mentioned just a minute ago, are in serious trouble as we approach these uh, these midterm elections near the end of the year, at least in the House races with redistricting and gerrymandering. The latest polls show the Democrats on track to lose as many as 20 or 25 House seats, even if they pick up one or two Senate seats. Uh, But besides gerrymandering, the Democrats are facing a decided lack of enthusiasm among registered Democrats and members of their base. President Biden's approval ratings are around 40 percent. Seventy percent of Americans say the country's headed in the wrong direction. And the Democrats are worried that their base of voters just won't turn out. It's not that they're worried about people, you know, leaving the Democratic Party to vote for Republicans. They're worried about people just not showing up to vote. Um, give us your thoughts on this enthusiasm gap.
4: Well, if you watched Joe Biden's first uh, joint address, it wasn't a State of the Union, but it was like the first you know speech he gave. Not not the one, not the State of the Union we just heard, the one about Ukraine, but but the one before that. Um, it was very much, it was almost a Bernie Sanders ish speech. I mean, it was almost pretty far to the left of as he ran, uh-huh. and you could tell that he was trying to build up the enthusiasm. That, oh, yes, that, you know, your average Democrat, the changes they want our Bernie Sanders kind of changes. And he was very much trying to, to you know, rile up his base. Uh, and that was almost an act of desperation because you notice very little of it, if any, has actually been delivered on. Uh, you know, I mean, he didn't build the infrastructure he promised, he didn't, you know, the tax code hasn't changed, you know, you know, the unions didn't get the PRO Act uh, that they wanted. Uh, I mean, it's like, so you're not seeing, you know, the the actual agenda that most Democrats believe in being carried out and I think it's just very, very hard to get enthusiasm at this point. And, you know, Joe Biden's presidency is just not one that many people get excited about. Um, I mean, the the approval ratings are very, very low. The economy is not doing very well. A lot of people are suffering and economic reforms are not being delivered on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, you know, we see a lot of cynicism and we see a lot of people who are very frustrated. And, you know, I mean, Biden came in promising he was going to fix up, you know, the the disaster of the Trump administration. And things have largely gotten worse in terms of the economy, yeah. especially in terms of international relations. They've gotten worse. So, you know, I mean, you know, people that are not already Democrats, uh, you know, people that are kind of on the fence, they're going to probably lean Republican at this point just because they're going to observe the situation and say things have gotten worse. And then among the Democratic base, you have this enthusiasm gap, this lack of enthusiasm because they're not seeing the stuff that gets them excited to actually be implemented biden can give a good speech when he needs to but you're not actually seeing delivering on on the points and that you know even that 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 joint address biden gave it was almost like some parts of it he was just going over it's like what what do the far left want to hear what what words can i give them well people don't want to be given words they want to be given concrete actions and uh you know i mean it's just he you know and that seems there seems to be a focus on words in a lot of you know academic and left spaces if you say the right words If you say the right buzzwords, that means you're getting it done. And I I, I feel like a lot of people want actual action, not words.
1: I want to ask you about third parties. Colleagues of ours day before yesterday had Roger Stone on their show. It was the uh, the morning show, Fault Lines. And, um, you know, Roger likes to take credit for having just sort of zeroed out third parties or at least exposure of third parties in America to the media. The Democrats certainly uh, had no objection to that. They still blame Ralph Nader for uh, giving us George W. Bush. In fact, Ralph Nader gave a speech the other day, um, last week or so, and he said that there are still Democratic members of Congress who won't speak to him because he ran uh, on the uh, Reform Party ticket in, in 2000. Still won't speak to him after 22 years. So you've got Republicans and Democrats who agree that they don't want viable third parties in this country. But then if you look at public opinion polls, a, a large plurality of Americans want viable third parties. You look at our at our Democratic allies around the, the world. Uh, you know, the, the Canadians have multiple parties. The British have three major parties and, and uh, several minor parties uh, in, in Greece, for example. I, I went to vote in Greek elections in the summer of 2019. There were 36 parties and six of them made their way into parliament. Why, why is it that we just can't have a, a real third party, a viable third party in this country?
0: Well, I think
4: there's a, a couple factors. The first is just the way our voting system works. I mean, with the Electoral College um, and with, you know, with the way the election of senators and the election of the House of Representatives, we have first past the post. We don't have uh, yep. proportional representation. We don't, you know, I mean, the way things are set up, I mean, it's very hard uh, to have a three-way race, um, you know, seriously in the United States where, where, you know, all three are serious contenders. Um, So part of that is just the way our voting system works. On top of that, though, you can talk about, you know, especially coming out of the Second World War, you know, U.S. politics was very much in a bubble, right? The rest of the world, you had a far left, you know, especially in European countries, but in the developing world as well, you would have a far left and a far right, and you'd have a center left and a center right, and in the United States, we just had two kind of centrist parties, right? We didn't have right-wing nationalist elements the way other countries did, uh, and we didn't, ha- we didn't have a far left, really, uh, either, and there was just kind of this, this sensibility, I guess you could call it. Uh, you know, Mark Twain, I think he used to joke, he said, America is a great country because people are free to think whatever they want and say whatever they want, but they have the common decency to do neither of those mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it was just kind of, come especially coming out of the Second World War when the U.S. had a very strong economy, there was just this feeling that, you know, we in the United States, we we go along, we do things, we don't have extreme politics, you know, this kind of 1950s quaint image. That's not where most Americans are at politically right now, but the people who got into the office, people who've been in, in power for a long time, came to power in an atmosphere that was very much like that. And especially the 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a feeling that, you know, the United States, you know, its dominance was secure and this kind of, you know, centrist, moderate, you know, politics. It's more about personalities than policy uh, that that was going to hold. Well, that has changed. Um, um, You know, people are very upset. The economy is not doing well. International relations are changing. And so, you know, I, I remember telling people in 2016, I said, most countries around the world have had a Donald Trump and a Bernie Sanders for decades. Yeah. We just got one because the United States is changing. If anything, the United States is kind of getting back to normal. It's kind of turning into a normal country politically, but it's a difficult transition. And I think it's very possible that despite our political setup, we may soon have four parties rather than two. I mean, there may be a more Bernie sanders just democratic party and there may be a more more trumpian nationalist Republican party, um, but on the other hand, it's getting so bizarre. it may be that the Republican Party just just kind of turns into a catch all party for all dissidents, and the Democrats just become a catch all party for the establishment because we see so many neocon Republicans like Bill Crystal and others basically becoming Democrats, yeah, and then we we see odd, you know, odd statements from you know hardcore trumpers, you know, about Bernie Sanders and stuff. so so it may just, you know, flip and turn into a situation where Democrats are the centrist party and Republicans are the opposition populist party. Um, you know, and that would be a pretty bizarre turn, but that would kind of fit the way our two-party system kind of works and the way our voting system works.
1: You know, I'm I'm in the process of writing a book right now, and I'm spending a lot of time um, looking at uh, mid-19th century politics and the number of of parties, serious, real parties, represented in Congress in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. It's remarkable. It wasn't just the the Whigs who became the Republicans and the Democrats. It's the Free Soil Party, the Know Nothing Party, the Liberal Republicans, the Liberal Democrats. There were all kinds of different parties and they were all in in Congress. And it wasn't unusual at all for for well-known, important politicians To just jump from party to party to party if they felt that their personal ideology was being violated. Salmon P. Chase was the Treasury Secretary under uh, Abraham Lincoln. And he was an abolitionist, but a Democrat. He left the Democrats. He went to the Republicans. Uh, He didn't like the way he was treated by Abraham Lincoln. So then he went to the Free Soil Party. Then he went back to the Democrats. Then he went to this new party called the liberal Republicans that lasted into the 1870s. And that was normal back then. Well, now, if you're a member of the libertarians or the greens, oh, you're, you're one of those fringe people who just can't fit in where everybody else fits in. And on top of that, you have, you have the likes of, you know, the Roger Stones of the world pushing third parties out of presidential debates you know, in collusion with the RNC and the DNC. I remember when I was a kid watching presidential debates that weren't just Jimmy Carter and, and uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, but also John Anderson. And later on, um, Ed Clark, who was a libertarian, and Ross Perot, who was an independent reform party uh, standard bearer. We just don't ever see that anymore. They're completely cut out. Yeah, I mean you're you're
4: not wrong, and I mean it's the narrowing of political discourse, and I think that because there's such a strong sentiment for a third party among the population, that the rigidness and the kind of boycotting and shunning of anyone who actually does go in that direction by those in the two major parties has intensified. I think they're more threatened by the idea of a third party. In the '90s, you could have Ross Perot, and it was just kind of like, okay, this is a gimmick, we can do this, all right, let him do his thing or whatever. But now that there's actual so much sentiment among the population for a third party the kind of uh, feeling that anyone who would actually go there, anyone from the political establishment who would leave a major party and join a third party is kind of a traitor who's threatening the right. whole game and ha- and has to be boycotted and blacklisted. Uh, you know, that's probably more intense among the establishment figures.
1: Yeah, agreed. I want to ask you one last question. Um, this is about Hunter Biden. The New York Times finally admitted that the Hunter Biden laptop was the real deal. And that is after... 50, 50, count them, former senior CIA officials, and I mean like former CIA directors, deputy directors, uh, division chiefs, wrote a letter, an open letter saying that the laptop was a Russian disinformation plot. They look ridiculous now. I think I'm going to write an op-ed about that. Um, Now we learn that a group of senators... had access to the information on the laptop since last summer. and None of them said anything. None of them did anything. They didn't go to the press. Walk us through this laptop issue and how it implicates the Chinese. What was Hunter Biden doing with the Chinese? Why is this important?
4: Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, This fits a pattern that I've seen over and over and over, which is that, again, is the laptop real or not, right? Disinformation means false, right? It means that it's not true, right? right? Or so if, if it's actually a real laptop and if the contents of that laptop are indeed real, then it's not disinformation. And we repeatedly see situations where there are stories that the mainstream media decides are off limits. And it's not that they're not true. It's that talking about it would serve some agenda of Russia or would would somehow you know, serve some political agenda that is problematic. And this should be very, very disturbing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I really, I mean, this is, this is something we haven't seen in a long time, that like, this is a true thing, but if you say it, you're serving a, a criminal agenda, so therefore we treat it as if it is false. I mean, the right. way the New York Post article was suppressed by Twitter and Facebook, I mean, this is very, very disturbing stuff and it's a real laptop. And, and there's a lot of people that are like, yeah, we knew it was real all along. I mean, you know, and they never really said it was fake. They just said, because we think maybe Russia somehow may have been involved in promoting the ideas on it, or somehow talking about it will serve Russia. It's off limits. And the fact that it was suppressed during an election cycle is particularly big, right? The fact that, you know, that, I mean, that, that, I mean, that, could have arguably impacted, I mean, if more people had known about the laptop, if mainstream outlets had said, okay, this is real, and just reported on it in an objective way, that could have possibly affected the election results. Uh, that's particularly disturbing. And it shows how much power uh, the, uh, the intel agencies have in, in crafting discourse. They declared this story to be off limits, even though it was true, uh, because uh, you know, they said it serves some kind of Russian agenda or something. And by doing so, I mean, they had a very big impact on the vote. I mean, we don't know that that Biden would have lost. We don't know that. I mean, there's a very good chance Biden would have won anyway because, uh, you know, the things were bad and the, the pandemic and Trump was viewed as incompetent, et cetera. But, but this had a very big impact. And it was true. They just decided it wasn't allowed you know, for discussion. And now we have full on confirmation from The New York Times and all kinds of other sources that, yes, it was a true story. Um, but it, you know, talking about it helps somebody we don't want to help or fed the agenda of Russia or somehow it's off limits. And that, I mean, I, I, I hate to repeat myself so much, but it's just like, that should be very, very, very disturbing to anybody. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, it reminds you almost of McCarthyism, you know, it's like, well, you know, don't say that because that's what the commies would want you to, you know, think, right. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is talking about civil rights. Well, don't you know, the communist party was always talking about how African-Americans are oppressed, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like you can't talk about certain issues because it might feed the agenda, even if what you're saying is true. I mean, this is this is really, really a disturbing level of, of thinking, and it reflects a level of desperation. There may have been sentiments like this behind closed doors for a long time. Um, but the fact that they're just being aired publicly, that we don't talk about true things because it might you know, feed an agenda we don't agree with uh, and we treat them as if they are false. Because of that, that is very, very
1: disturbing. Oh, it's very dangerous, and it makes me think of Madison Cawthorn. You know, we've been following this story with Madison Cawthorn on the on the show, and and his claim over the weekend that he's been invited to orgies and Republicans were snorting coke there. Um, so he came out with a political ad today, um, blaming the elite left wing establishment for doing this to him. <laughs> Yeah, you just blame your political enemy and just hope everything goes away. Okay, we'll leave it there. We were very happy to be joined by journalist and political analyst Caleb Maupin. You are listening to Political Misfits. Michelle and I will be back after a short break.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into some very interesting tech stories mm-hmm. of the past couple of days. Joining us to help make sense of them is Chris Garafa, editor of techforthepeople.org. Chris, thanks for being here.
5: Oh, as always, great to be back with you. Thank you.
0: I want to talk about what I think is something of a bombshell from yesterday. Uh, this is a report in Bloomberg that not only are tech companies like Apple and Meta, in this instance, uh, providing information about their users' communications to law enforcement, they are apparently also handing it out to people who present them with forged legal requests for it. Again, according to this Bloomberg story, Apple and Meta provided basic subscriber details like addresses, phone numbers, and IP addresses in the middle of last year in response to forged emergency data requests. And uh, they point out that normally you can only hand out this data if someone comes to you with a search warrant or a subpoena, someone being law enforcement saying we have a a subpoena, we have a search warrant from a judge. But these uh, emergency requests can get around these obstacles. And also, according to this report, the information Uh, That was given to these uh, these hackers using forged documents was used to enable harassment campaigns and to commit financial fraud. To be fair, apparently these forgeries were pretty good, but this still seems quite troubling, Chris.
5: It's extremely troubling, and you know, yeah, the forgeries might have been great and they might even have been coming from the email addresses of actual police departments because some of the criminal groups that have been exploiting this, you know, have to, would have taken over those email addresses or email systems. But even then, if you're a company with the resources of Meta or Apple or Google or Microsoft, you can still just pick up the phone. I mean, literally Google the phone number of the police department that's requesting it, pick up the phone, call, ask for the person who emailed and say, "Is this real? Do you need this? Here's the information. I'll you know send it back to you via email as well. Um, and you very quickly, would get you know, figure out that it is a a fake request, which actually would also help the agency that's been attacked to know that they've been, you know, taken over. Right. Um, I mean, it, it also is a situation where, you know, if the companies didn't have access to this information, they couldn't give it out. Mm-hmm. So if you look at some of the information, right. Addresses, phone numbers, uh, IP addresses of connections—you know those kind of things. Uh, you know, if you don't store that, or you don't allow, you know, certain levels of staff to store those things, or to visit, you know, view those things, then you can't give it to anyone. Uh, the, the emergency request is kind of like it's like what the police say, you know, there's exigent circumstances. They they heard somebody screaming inside a building and therefore were able to go in without, you know, without getting a, a search warrant. Right. Um, and, you know, often can be overused as well. I, I don't know that there is a real uh, you know, a real use without any kind of real oversight process for these things. I'm sure there have been situations where they've been helpful, but we have to consider, does this bring broad authority that police departments have. Forget about these, you know, attackers and criminal groups, but the broad authority that law enforcement has uh, needs to be considered as well when we're thinking about the abuse or just plain use of the emergency data request.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously being exploited by it. It's funny that this uh, one of the characters, this uh, lapsus group, the guy behind this Lapsus hacker group—he uh, had been in the news a couple of days before, maybe a, a week before. They had caught the guy. I think it was—I think it's a teenager. It's a single man operation. Um, but he's referenced in this story as someone who who used this tactic. I have to follow up, Chris. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned companies just not having that information, because uh, I I wanted to ask one: wh- Why do they ask for it anyway? Why Why do they need your your physical address? I can see how you could maybe. Want to confirm that if you're confirming someone's identity and then dump that information. okay. but like IP address, could you could could a tech company possibly not? Don't you need to know that to to do the function of whatever app you're using? Is there a way companies could not store this information?
5: Sure, but you don't need to store it. Mm -hmm. You don't need to keep it around. And if you do, if there is some sort of regulatory need to keep it around, you can store it in such a way that you can compare it to a new value, but you can never reverse it. That is to say, you can say, okay, the last IP that I came from and the one I'm coming from now are the same, so it's probably me. Don't ask me for my password again. Um, but you can just do so in a way that doesn't allow you to look up and say, well, what was that last password or the last IP address? There are ways to do this. Um, and, you know, in terms of addresses and stuff like that, I mean, you could do this. You could do similar most of the time. Of course, if you had to enter your address on Amazon every time you place an order, that would be really annoying. So there are certainly use cases for keeping that stuff, you know, accessible to a certain level of person.
0: Hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm I'm wondering what could be solutions to this other than that one, because the first thing I thought was, okay, if if hackers, uh, if people are using forged documents and pretending to be law enforcement, I can see the obvious solution being better connections between tech companies and law enforcement. But I also think that would have some significant drawbacks. The other option would be, you know, don't don't give law enforcement so much data. Right. Don't don't allow them to access it even through, you know, even through these warrants, even through uh, these uh, uh, not, you know, not even these emergency requests. Um, but I, you know, looking at the political atmosphere right now where, you know, you have the Biden administration, you know, praising itself for giving more funding to police and sort of a, a big uh, love for law enforcement that has been rediscovered, I I don't think this is an atmosphere uh, in which we could realistically expect restrictions to be put on them. So, yeah, I mean, are are there other than not having the companies have this data, is there another way to protect it?
5: You know, policy is always changeable. Right. And I think that's a really important thing. It's like, yes, Biden is very anti-defund police as he's very pro-police. But you know, policy can change and it can change under pressure, both corporate policy and government policy, particularly. So I think that looking at you know the moves to get companies to put into place end-to-end encryption, to stop storing information that they don't need. And advertising, by the way, is not a need. Uh, and I think that's something that needs to be made clear to a lot of these companies. Um, you know, those are ongoing. So I think we we can affect those changes. I mean, ultimately, you know, there are few circumstances, I think, where the police would realistically want to or, you know, should reach out to a social media provider, for example. Um, but I think, you know, one of those situations would be for people undergoing harassment online where that harassment escalates to, you know, credible threats, which happens regularly to women, to people of color, to queer folks. Um, and so that is, you know, a case and I, I've worked with folks going through this process where you, you might you want to put a restraining order on somebody, but you need to know who they are to do so. So there there are some limited circumstances, but that shouldn't be used to open up the entire situation you know, or the entire data set to all police or anyone pretending to be the police.
0: No, I mean, it's, uh, it's remarkable to me that this hasn't happened before. Or Maybe that this is the first time we're hearing about it. It does sound really dangerous. Uh, I also wanted to talk Well, you know what? Let's stick with the bad news. (laughs) We'll get to the good news. What is this story in The Washington Post about the Pentagon attempting, through DARPA, of course, uh, to find a way to outsource some of its human decision-making on the battlefield to artificial intelligence? This scares
1: the crap out of me.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems to be (laughs) in early stages. Chris can confirm that for us. But the, the program is called In the Moment, and it is apparently a stage in the process, not near the end, of trying to create trusted algorithmic decision makers to call the shots in some instances where, as uh, this program describes it, ground truth is unavailable and where trusted decision makers disagree, where no right answer exists and uncertainty, time pressure and conflicting values create significant decision making challenges. And so this sounds like the same old idea that somehow If you put a machine in charge, you can eliminate human biases. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, Chris, if you can talk to us about I mean, there are a lot of questions here. The the way this program is trying to create its AI seems kind of interesting. But then, as we've talked about before, you can't I don't think I have not seen it demonstrated that you can pull human biases from machinery made by humans. Right, so uh, there's a couple different deep questions in there, Chris. You can decide which one you want to start with. Let's let's
5: start with the second one uh, because I think it's it's really interesting and it's part of what we need to think about with any technology, especially machine learning, artificial intelligence, where you train the data on you you train the model on the data that you give it. You have to give it certain information and say this is a person, this is a gun, this is a car, this is a tank, Um, and then you have to You know, check the outcome of you run tests on it, you check the outcome and you tweak your model to say, you know, to be able to detect, you know, an SUV versus a small armored, you know, vehicle. Uh, Very difficult stuff to do. You know, this is not easy stuff. But there's this idea that we can and should Learn. Have computers learn everything and learn to do everything and make decisions like people. But look at some of the decisions that people in the military command make. I mean, even if discounting the fact that like U.S. wars are unjust, you know, the the individual decisions, you know, bombing a hospital, whether on bad intelligence or good. Well, if you're training that system. On what a human would have done in that situation, then that hospital is probably going to get bombed right. anyway, right? Right. So it's just going to happen faster mm-hmm. with you know without especially without any checks at the end. But we've also seen when we've seen it with the with the application of facial recognition at police departments that uh, operators are more likely to trust the result of some kind of you know quote AI. And just approve the results and say, "Great, this said, this is the answer. Let's go with it." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some some really interesting people weighing in on this, and you know, one of them just says, "AI is great at counting things. I mean, computers are great at counting things. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not an AI thing." And I think that you know, one of the things DARPA is relying on here is really this idea that uh, people are in love with this. Fantastical idea of AI, right? I mean, DARPA plays with all kinds of things. Sometimes results come out of them. Sometimes they don't. Right. Um, the internet is one, you know, infamous, like obvious example of what has come out. GPS as well. The GPS on your phone, or when you used to have that little thing on your dashboard. Um, those have also come out of of DARPA, um, and really, they are publicly owned because they have come out of of the government. But this. These kinds of things are very there are very few real public good you know benefits that could come out of training, you know weapon systems or systems that are uh, ne- you know can connected to weapon systems.
0: Chris, I just want to say I think that is such an important point that you that you made, especially now when we are looking at. The the aftermath of our last infamous last drone strike in Kabul, uh, looking at some of uh, what we are only now learning about the way the U.S. has uh, perpetrated its war in Syria, I, I think it is important to to uh, look into whether, as you as you mentioned, having a machine make a decision only leads to less human questioning and less human oversight. I think if we have are are learning anything about the way the United States, at least. Um, manages its war machines abroad, we definitely need more people to say, hey, I think this is a bad idea. Hey, I think I see something there that we shouldn't be using as a target. Hey, I think I see anything else. You know, the the idea that you could be implementing a process that will r- result in less of that exactly when we need more is really scary.
5: And we can't forget about the corporate involvement here either. Mm-hmm. You know, Microsoft has been working on uh, it's kind of similar Projects. Um, not exactly at this level, but there's certainly a connection um, between the DARPA programs and Microsoft's Halo, which is a kind of a heads up display to give soldiers in Battlefield, more insight into their surroundings. Um, It could certainly be weaponized at some point. And of course, Microsoft's uh, CEO, Brad Smith, has explicitly said he wants the U.S. military to have the best possible weapons and support systems available. I mean, it's very, very clear that Microsoft and and all of the other companies that do business with the DoD and DARPA and so on are, you know, are working with them towards their lethal goal whether or not they're at that stage. Now, I liken it in a way to uh, the development of self-driving cars, really, right? At first, it was just, you know, you could your car would parallel park itself. And now they're getting closer to, uh, but not at, like that final level of autonomous driving where you can get in, it'll take you hundreds of miles away or just down the street and park itself and you've never had to touch a control. And it's the step-by-step. That I think we we need to pay attention to because it often gets gets biased that, you know, all all of a sudden we've got all of these amazing advances that have happened with the technology, but they haven't happened all at once. And so it sort of sneaks up on us.
0: I also want to ask in in more positive news uh, about this news that the Department of Justice has endorsed legislation that would block big digital platforms like Amazon and Google from favoring their own products and services over competitors, right? So this is antitrust legislation. Uh, The DOJ's letter about it called, you know, uh, Amazon and Google promoting their own products a threat to open markets and competition. Uh, It invoked risks to consumers, businesses, as well as innovation. And this is where it starts to get sort of weird and esoteric, uh, global competitiveness and our democracy which is kind of funny. Uh, I want to come back to the sort of vague threats, but how important is it that the DOJ has thrown its weight behind this antitrust legislation, Chris? I think
5: the fact that this has the support, you know, explicitly of the DOJ uh, means that it has a a significantly better chance of getting through hearings and in various committees and will, you know, could come to a final vote, um, you know, in one or both houses. Uh, I'm not saying I think it's definitely going to pass, but, you know, because there's you know many other steps it has to go through, and we've seen a lot of obstructionist, uh, you know, work from members of Congress in both houses and from both parties. But it would be very important to have that part of the bill. Uh, what this is saying is that Amazon, for example, can't take its Amazon Basics uh, products, which is a brand that it has. If you go search for, you know, a USB cable, you're going to see Amazon Basics up there, and. Promote that above other products just because it is Amazon's own product, similar to Apple in the App Store search results or Google on their search results, whether it's apps or something else. I mean, I think that's a straightforward thing, right? You own the platform and you own the product that you're selling. You know, you shouldn't be able to just say, especially against people who are paying for ads. And, you know, in this case, we are talking strictly about advertising stuff. You shouldn't be able to say, well... You can't pay us enough to list yourself above us. Um, those are two separate. The Amazon basics, for example, and the Amazon website for search are two different things. I think that makes full sense. Now, on the question of like this question, like democracy?
0: like It's all these buzzwords. Global competitiveness, resilience and democracy. I hate when they I do mean, that. I, I do think Amazon represents a threat to de- democracy, de- democracy to the extent that we have it in the United States anyway. But like, I, I do not. Do you have any idea, Chris, what's going on?
5: It's, it's completely just part of the anti-China moves that the US has been making for a number of years now. We're seeing China get stronger, and especially um, with you know, recent comments at the UN you know, getting much more bold um, in the face of the of, you know, challenges from the US. And these moves, and this is just one of many, are the US saying, you know, we're not going to let you continue to grow this way. I mean, that's the only way you can define a bill about American companies dealing with antitrust behavior, uh, even mentioning democracy and freedom, um, because that's the same language that is used against countries like Russia and China.
0: Yeah, I I think it is. It was just... Funny, right? I don't know what to call it other than I mean the the implications are dark, but it's also like okay, all right, our democracy is threatened by by Amazon. Okay, I'm sure we're on the same page about that. That was Chris Garafa, editor of Tech for the People. Chris, thanks as always for uh, walking us through all of this. Hey, thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC, and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty. I'm still here with John Kiriakou, and we have even more stories for you that we did not get we to do. today. Yes, we, we do. We teased at the very top of the show a tasteless tweet. Shall we, shall we get into it? Yeah. A man in the UK has been sentenced by a court to 150 hours of community service for posting A tweet and eighteen months of probation. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, also that and that. Yeah, for for posting what is being described as a uh, grossly offensive tweet uh, about a captain, a a former British Army officer who was raising money for the NHS during the pandemic. You might have. I remember when this guy made news. He was like doing laps around his garden, hundred hundred year old guy. Yeah,
1: and he did a hundred laps around his backyard to raise money for the National Health Service. Yeah.
0: Cool. Kudos. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Uh, (laughs) This 36 year old man, (laughs) the day before he died, tweeted, the only good Brit soldier is a dead one. Burn old fella burn.
1: Yeah. And he misspelled dead and burn.
0: Yeah. Fine. You know, because he was drunk and depressed. We might have been doing accent too, deed, although I guess you write that with a D I E D E I D, you know. Like my heed, my deed. Yeah, whatever. Doesn't matter. It's a tasteless tweet. Should you be punished for that? I I do not think so. Obviously, they don't have the same First Amendment rights in the the UK. So it's not as though. But I find that astonishing.
1: And he was actually facing jail time for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were saying that he got off easy with 150 hours of community service, 18 months of probation. And his defense was. I'm so sorry, I've been depressed, I haven't had a job, I was drunk, I deleted the tweet 20 minutes after I wrote it, there was no harm done, even if it was tasteless. No, it's not like he
0: mailed it to his house or something. Yeah. I think it's wild. It's crazy. I, his his uh, defense said he accepts what he did was wrong. Yeah. I mean, again, okay, I can good. Okay, relax, people. Yeah, come on. He, <laughs> he said a nasty tweet. The old man is never going to see it. No. And, you know. No. I think it's probably a valid critique of the British British armed forces. You know what I mean? I don't know. Look at what happened in <laughs> Sri Lanka. I, you know, I, I don't think you should necessarily target individuals, especially uh, extremely old ones. But uh, it just is. It's, it's it's astonishing to me. So I hope I hope he enjoys his community service. I have some sympathy there.
1: I do too. I feel sorry for him. This
0: is another story that is uh, absolutely terrible um, and uh, getting some attention now, which is good. Uh, but there's been protests for some time now in front of the Grand Gateway Hotel yes, in indeed. Rapid City, South Dakota. Uh, after, so I guess there was a murder at the hotel. Someone, yes. someone shot someone in a hotel room. Um, oh, no, the, someone, there was a shooting. It wasn't a murder. Right. The victim survived. Right. Uh, both men involved were Native American. So the owner of the hotel gets on Facebook and says, we will no longer allow any Native Americans on property. Yes. Which is, it's I mean, stunning, stunning. And, and also, I I have to throw in, she said ranchers, ranchers and travelers are going to get a special rate, which is also, uh, you know, I don't know, ranchers. I'm on the opposite side of ranchers when it comes to a lot of things, totally a lot of wildlife conservation and yes. Uh, Land, land use and and the like. But yeah, so obviously this Facebook post got a lot of attention. Uh, it, there are a lot of uh, Native Americans in South Dakota. They're a pretty big, uh, you know, relatively speaking, a pretty big segment of the population compared to a lot of other U.S. states and the yes. East Coast. And so, uh, you know, there's been a civil rights lawsuit now filed against the Gateway Hotel, which very much deserved but yeah, I mean I think it does highlight that these are these are attitudes that exist that definitely r- remain in our society. Uh, it's not necessarily that often that you see someone without a doubt put them so clearly, right? Broadcast them so and, clearly. And
1: but- did you happen to see the uh the actual Facebook post from the owner of the of the motel? Yeah. It was it's it was only semi-literate. Yeah. Uh, you you have to read it twice to even figure out what in the world she's trying to say, but it was clearly yeah. Wrong and likely illegal.
0: Yeah, you can't say you can't come to my hotel if you're a certain race. I think that is illegal. I think, I think that was definitely made illegal. Uh, so, yeah, just a terrible story. Uh, it, it, not terrible stories. I mean, I think this is probably going to be controversial. But the, the State Department today announced that it will uh, accept an ex-gender marker on U.S. Yeah. passports. Yeah, that was, uh, that's a big deal. It's the first federal government agency to offer that marker for a while now. Uh, You have been able to select you've been able to select your gender and you don't have to prove it medically and it doesn't have to match prior identification. So they have been taking steps to allow people to, you know, put gender that they were not necessarily assigned at birth and not have to go through a whole bunch of rigmarole, uh, you know, when you try to change anything on an official document. And now they're saying, you you know, you're not going to have to choose from a binary Uh, anymore, which I think is great.
1: The truth, uh, gender is is superfluous now. Mm. To uh, d- to a document like a passport, because with the advanced facial recognition software that we have, there's no reason for anybody to have to identify as a male, a female or something else. Mm-hmm. It's just not necessary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so now you can choose X. You can also choose X if we want to. Also, this is a story I, I had been meaning to get to for a couple of days because I think this stuff is exciting. Uh, but this story about prehistoric human remains. Having been discovered at a development site for a condo in Miami,
1: crazy prehistoric Mm. in that wet soil.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they found. I guess they found a skull six feet below, and then have found some. This morning, the Wall Street Journal on their podcast uh, mentioned the name of the civilization. Wow! Or that it was supposed to be part of, and now I'm trying to. I'm trying to look it up. Yeah, but it was very cool. Uh, it was really it was really interesting. And they, so they have stopped building. This happened back in April of last year, um, but we're only learning about it now. I guess it took them that time to uh, to identify what they had found. Yeah, uh, it's a civilization known as the Tequesta that existed more than 2000 years ago. I think that's really neat. And in parallel uh, uh, parallel news from Florida, Which might result in uh, more remains being left in the soil. uh, They keep not passing condo safety legislation. Right, because uh, what condos don't just fall down, right? Not in America, John. Absolutely not. Yeah. uh, So they've been trying, but legislation, uh, legislative session has just ended once again with no changes to existing building codes. So that was only nine months ago. Yeah. Uh, It's inexcusable. uh, No, yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, the other thing is that I will say, I I don't exactly recall this. It's one thing to have to to on the books not have enough uh, requirements, right, to not have enough regulation. And it is another thing for that to not be enforced. So this also could be a situation where, you know, the paper on paper you are supposed to follow all these steps that are supposed to keep everybody safe. You just don't actually have anybody doing it, which I think is often the case, right? Yes. Because it's one thing to pass to write a law and pass it. And it's another to actually staff the agencies that are supposed to enforce it and staff, you know, pay to send people out there and pay to have enough people and, you know, maintain some kind of headquarters and storage and all of that other stuff. And this is, I think what we see a lot when this is a early in the Biden administration, they, um, Came out with a bunch of new uh, plans to crack down on shell companies and, uh, and shady financial transactions. But again, it's one thing to say on paper, this is what you are and aren't allowed to do. And it's another thing to have somebody come and, you know, actually That's right. inspect to see if you are doing it and then stop you from doing it. That's right. Yeah. Kind of like a, an audit
1: at the Pentagon. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> Which would I, be a great idea.
0: I mean, they keep trying. They, they do. just they can't because there is not enough information. That's, yeah. When was the, the last Pentagon? It was a couple months ago. There's yeah. another report.
1: Yeah. And once again, they're just, you know, over over the course of years, trillions of dollars that are missing, mm-hmm. just missing, mm-hmm. unaccounted for.
0: There's also a really sad story out of the LA Times. And Maxine Waters, it plays a role in this story. And Maxine Waters is a real uh, lightning rod for uh, the right wing and particularly, yeah. I think, more racist elements of the right wing. Uh, but the, she's sort of peripheral to this story. The really sad story is that this nonprofit advocacy group in L.A. had planned three events to help unhoused people obtain emergency shelter. Right. That's what these events were like. But a, a social media, an unofficial social media post incorrectly said the people who showed up would get vouchers for permanent subsidized housing. And tons of people came out for it. Tons of people came out looking to, you know, quite rightly, uh, correctly, understandably, get into some kind of uh, home, only again to have their hopes dashed over and over and over. They, people were lining up before dawn on one day, thinking that maybe they just hadn't gotten there early enough, and coming back another day, uh, and so w- at one of these events, Maxine Waters was there. There's this huge crush of people. They're really angry when they discover that what they thought they had been promised is is not what's going to happen. And Maxine Waters, I think, got a little got a little angry and said, "Nobody works harder for my constituents than I do." Blah blah blah, which is a little rich when you're worth uh, Maxine Waters. Not worth nearly as much as some other of our no. members of Congress. I think she's worth about two or three million. Uh, but still, I mean, you know, she's playing a peripheral role. I think Fox News is going to get very excited because she said the, said the F word. But the real tragedy is yeah. how, how many people you have lining up to, yeah, to that's try to get the tragedy housing in L.A. It, it's so sad.
1: That is the tragedy. Actually, uh, Fox News ran the story this morning and the whole point of the story was to criticize Maxine Waters.
0: Yeah, I mean, really like it was her missing fault. the forest for the trees here. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you to to everyone who helped make the show possible, including all of our guests. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.